0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 228. It's titled, How Tokenization Will Radically Change Investing. Tokenization, this was a topic that came up on the Money for the Restless Plus member forum. Jane asked about it, and I frankly didn't, I wasn't sure what it was. And then later, I got an email from another Plus member, Eric and Matthias, who sent me some helpful links on the topic. Before we discuss what tokenization is, let's look at the problem that tokenization promises to solve. Back in the day, and we'll call the day back up until the 1960s, when you bought a stock, a stock is ownership in a company. If you bought a publicly traded stock, there was a paper stock certificate that went with it. And in in the U.S., on Wall Street, the reason why so much trading and brokerages were headquartered around Wall Street in Lower Manhattan is because these stock certificates needed to be transferred from one firm to the other as stocks were traded. So in order to to finally settle the stock, the, the paper certificate needed to be either sent out to the owner or kept at the brokerage firm where the particular owner or account holder had traded the stock. It got to be a real problem. So by the the nineteen seventies, I mean there, there was such a backlog of all this paper moving back and forth. There were times they would just do trading holidays just so they could catch up on the paperwork. Beginning in the nineteen seventies, then the industry adopted what was known as immobilization, immobilizing these physical stock certificates. certificates. So put, putting them in a central depository and that's where we are today 99.9 percent of shares in the u.s 37 trillion dollars are held in this street name by brokers or banks so they're the custodian but the shares are actually deposited with the depository trust company dtc and the the Essentially, they're held in the name of their affiliate. So there's this bookkeeping entry. Their affiliate is Seed and Company, C-E-D-E. That is the shareholder of record on the issuing company's stock register. So it's sort of this central depository. And the this depository trust company, as I understand it, is owned by the different brokerage firms. But that's where essentially the stock is held, and it's all done electronically. So when there's a trade from, in other words, so let's say one broker, there's enough trades that their holdings of stocks of a particular company, let's say Apple, was reduced, that's all reflected on these, essentially this electronic bookkeeping, this accounting entries, It's done through what is known as the Fast Automated Securities Transfer Account. So each day, all these net changes in brokers and bank shares balances are are adjusted. And that way, we're not having to move paper. Extremely efficient. Turns out there's a few problems with this. First, and the major problem, it's not always clear who the beneficial owner is of the stocks. If you own Apple in your brokerage account, it that ownership is essentially in the name of your broker and then sort of part of held at DTC. But do you really own it? In the sense that it's more of an IOU from the broker. Richard W. Baird in an article in the Valparaiso Law Review, it was titled, it was this from fall 2009, Elephant in the Boardroom, Counting the Vote in Corporate Elections. He wrote, although both the records at seed and company and beneficial owners account statements purport to track a definite number of shares, and although counting votes requires a definite number of shares, the underlying reality is is that custodial accounts hold pro-rata interest in a fungible mass of shares. Shares that are in continual motion, being bought, sold, lent, and borrowed without being traceable to particular accounts. So you might own shares of Apple and it's reflected on your brokerage statement, but it's not reflected on the accounts at the DTC and their beneficiary, beneficiary seed and company, sort of the subsidiary, they don't show that you actually own those shares. They just show, you now here are the shares that Vanguard has in their street name or Schwab. And here's where it became a problem or an example of a problem Dole Foods, which I believe, I guess it's a pineapple company and other things, they did a Leverage buyout. So they went private in November 2013. It was at $13.50 per share, and as often happens when this when there's a buyout like that, a leverage buyout, by in this case by I think it was a management buyout, there was some lawsuits involved. There was a class action lawsuit that the owners or the essentially the management of the company drove down the stock price, and so. It wasn't the price that the public shareholders wanted. So there was a lawsuit and it was settled in December 2015. They settled for $2.74 per share plus interest. The class action suit registered 36.8 million shares. So after the settlement, they needed to pay out this $2.74 per share. And so they sent out notice to the shareholders. As I mentioned, there was 36.8 million shares in the class. And that was based on what the DDC determined was outstanding as of November 1st, 2013, when the merger went in place. They sent out, and, and you've probably gotten notices about class action settlements, so you have to prove that you had it. Turns out they got 49.1 million shares. In other words, the responses from those that said they, they deserve the $2.74, there were 49.2 million brokerage statements for the 36.7 million shares outstanding. Well, how could that be? Well, a couple of things. Stocks don't settle immediately. So when you buy or sell a stock, it, it settles clears three days later, three business days later. And the DDC essentially said, well, here's what our records show, our ledger as of November 1st, and that's how many shares were outstanding, but they didn't, it wouldn't have taken into account any trades on October 30th, 31st, or November 1st, because they hadn't settled yet. And it was sort of the responsibility of the brokers that that participate in this to, to figure that out. But during that three-day period, there was 32 million shares of Dole common stock that changed hands. In addition, so you had, you had all this movement, but more importantly, you had short sales. In a short sale, the seller borrows a share from another stockholder, and then they sell it. Then that borrower returns the borrowed share when they close out their short position. But under the current practices for brokers, custodial banks, is they have authority to lend your shares that you hold in your account and not, not tell anyone. And the way that the law is, the beneficial owner is, is the person. Think about that. So they, these shares have been borrowed and then sold. That's part of their short sale, which means somebody on the other side of the trade bought those shares. Those shares have been bought twice. People that have them in their brokerage statement think they own them, but those shares might have been lent out and sold and somebody else now owns those shares. Double counting. And so that's why they ended up with 49.7 million claims, even though there is only roughly 37 million or yeah, 37 million shares of stock outstanding that's a problem too many shares in addition we have an issue with proxy voting a proxy vote is where you essentially get to cast your ballot for the person to recommend your interest so these are publicly traded corporations they have they 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 want their management slate board members you might be voting on other issues you may be're voting on A merger. Well, it's very difficult. Well, here's what Richard W. Barrett writes. Determining who has voting rights is often difficult because brokers lend shares from customers' margin accounts to short sellers who sell them at today's price in the hope of replacing the borrowed shares at a lower price later. When shares are lent, voting rights accompany them, even though the original owner thinks and her brokerage statement will show that the shares remain in her account. So because of that, when because of this short selling, suddenly you actually don't have the right to vote the shares. But because again, these they're just held at the DTC, the the brokerages they don't look to see which of their underlying customers lent shares, because it's just this huge mass at the DTC, so they're not allocated. This became an issue just last year when Procter & Gamble had a big proxy battle. Norman Peltz, he's the CEO of, of Trian Fund Management. He was an activist shareholder. He wanted to restructure P&G, reduce the number of business units to three, and so he wanted a board seat. And there was a huge fight and a vote. Two billion shares were voted in this election of the 2.6 billion shares entitled to vote. Tryon spent $25 million on the proxy battle. PG spent $100 million. At first, g announced their candidate had won by more than 6 million votes. In other words, Peltz had lost to Ernesto Zedillo by 6 million votes. Then, when the certification came through it showed that Peltz had actually won by 43,000 votes then in december it switched again turns out Peltz lost by 500,000 shares in which case P&G went ahead and let Peltz on there but the, but the challenge is it because it, you never sure you don't know who actually owns the share because of all this this short selling, it, you can't, it can't get exact. Here's what J. Travis Laster wrote in a speech that he gave September 29, 2016. It's called the Blockchain Plunger, using technology to clean up proxy plumbing and take back the vote. He said the votes for and against the proposal purport to provide an exact vote tally, but that is an illusion. The sheer complexity of the current voting system makes precision impossible. Custodians hold beneficial owner shares in a a fungible bulk. The shares that the custodians and DTC own are constantly being bought, sold, and borrowed. As the SEC has explained, because the ownership of individual shares held beneficially is not tracked in the U.S. clearance and settlement system, imbalances occur. When those imbalances occur, broker dealers must decide which of their customers will be permitted to vote and how many shares each customer will be permitted to vote. In that talk, Laster quotes or mentions Gil Sparks, who's one of the leading Delaware lawyers. And Delaware is where most publicly traded companies have that sort basically their legal entity is registered in Delaware. He estimates that in contests that are closer than 55 to 45 percent, there is no verifiable answer to the question who won. And Professor Yair Listokin of Yale Law School conducted an empirical study of corporate elections, and he concluded that proposals sponsored by management are overwhelmingly more likely to win by a very small amount than to lose by a very small amount, to a a degree that cannot occur by chance. The finding speaks for itself, Laster says, in the sense that so when a a shareholder vote comes up, a proxy vote, companies win by a little more than they lose, that chance would say. And, And why is that? Because these votes can be manipulated, because it's never sure who owns what shares, If company management wanted, they could actually borrow shares through the short selling process and through derivatives protect themselves in case so they had no financial interest. All they want is be able to aggregate voting interest without having any economic stake in terms of the cash flow because they've shorted the stock or they borrowed the shares but then protected themselves through derivatives in case the stock goes up in price. So they're immunized from any price change, but because they borrowed the shares, they have the right to vote. And that's, that's what's known as an empty vote. When you have the right to vote, but you actually have no financial interest because you don't have a financial stake in the stock ownership. The other problem is overvoting because it's all one fungible mass. Sometimes there's too many votes that take place. So this is a challenge. Before we look at how tokenization can solve these challenges, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com. david What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com/david. That's M O N A R C H M O N E Y.com/david for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. I'll admit that getting accurate proxy vote counts or figuring out who owns stock in a company for to to get a payment for a class action suit—that's not. These are not problems that keep me awake at night, and and frankly, you probably don't really care about them either. But tokenization is a solution. If you stay with me, there's there's an aspect of this that actually will change how we invest. Now, the solution, when I talk about tokenization, we're talking about essentially blockchain technology, a distributed ledger in which, and we've discussed this in in a number of the Bitcoin episodes, where effectively this ledger is a database and it tracks who owns a particular asset. That's what the the Bitcoin blockchain is. It, It shows all the transactions that have occurred With Bitcoin. And new entries to the ledger are added through a a consensus process, which in Bitcoin is called mining. And so those that participate in the network, the different nodes, or that are actively verifying transactions, they're solving a mathematical problem that involves private and public cryptography, it involves the public keys. The transactions that have occurred. And it's a very complicated mathematical problem. Once someone solves it, the other participants validate whether that's correct or not. Usually there's some type of reward, in which case Bitcoin is received by the miner. But there's a consensus, and in which case it's essentially decentralized, but there's a way to verify these transactions. That can be done in order to buy and sell stock, some type of distributed ledger. And that's what we mean by tokenization. Tokenization is there's a token. There's a a verified transaction when something is bought and sold. And so once the transaction is verified, it's then added to the blockchain. And the advantage of this approach is transparency. If we use distributed ledger technology, we would know who is buying and selling stock. And that that becomes particularly important if if you're a company management or or if you're an investor in the company, you would be able to see if company insiders are buying and selling. What's their view? Right now, there's a delay. Or if you're working for a company you would be able to see if there's an activist hedge fund manager aggregating shares in your company. So there'd be much more transparency if it was done with a very open form. There would certainly be more liquidity. The idea that you have to wait three days to settle your stock trade, and, and we talked about the challenges that, that presents. If you invest in Bitcoin, your your transactions verified within minutes. And there'd be a lot more accuracy in terms of who owns what, because there would be a digital signature who owns a particular share of stock. So it sort of solves all these problems that we've discussed. In addition, we if we use what are known as smart contracts, we can embed all kinds of stuff in the that sort of get tied along with the ownership. So it would allow people to embed contractual obligations, such as automated responses under specific conditions. In other words, you want to sell under certain conditions. It would allow the, the particular corporate actions, the proxy votes could be done all through this distributed ledger technology. It's complicated, but it actually w- would work. The existing system is extremely complicated and convoluted, and it doesn't work very well. And so here is a solution. Now, what's interesting about this is that the brokerage firms, they're not, they don't really, I'm not going to say they don't care, but they don't have a huge incentive to to change the system. But it's going to have to come from the institutional shareholders. That don't want to wait three days and, and don't want this confusion as to who owns what. But the more interesting aspect in terms of our investing is this same tokenization, this distributed ledger would allow for asset-backed tokens. In the sense, you have a real-world asset. I mean, that's what this essentially is. It's taking your ownership of a stock and tying it to a distributed ledger so you would have a token. The token being just this, this record that you own it, that you've bought or sold it. But a stock, I mean, a stock is still sort of intangible. But what if we did the same thing with gold? Or... Real estate. Recently, just this month, there was a condo development in the East Village in New York that is being sold through tokenization. So, this is at, well, you don't care what the address is, but it's in the East Village in New York. 12 unit project, and they are, it's a luxury condo development. And they're selling shares in this particular development through tokenizations. So you would own this real-world asset. And they're doing it in conjunction with two firms. One's called Propeller and Fluidity. And so they've combined to, to offer shares in this. Now, here's what's interesting. This is from an article by Steve McCown. He is a professor in... Where is he at? I think he's in Oregon. Professor of finance. And he brings up some interesting things about this opportunity. The fact that, for example, when I was in an investment advisor, institutional investment advisor, or even now, I invest in private equity funds and private real estate funds. And they're extremely illiquid. When I make a commitment, I, most of the money I will not see back in 10 years. And if you're an institution you're investing in these funds, these are very long-term commitments. The idea, you get some type of illiquidity premium that you'll get a higher return because it's illiquid. But if you're forced to sell in the secondary market, it can be very difficult to do. You might have to take a, a 30 to f- to 40% haircut on the value of that investment because there's just not, you just can't trade it. And, and the and the fund sponsors, they often don't. They don't want to spend time facilitating, facilitating trades in the secondary market. But think about if this ownership and these illiquid assets, be it real estate, be it a, a venture capital partnership. What if it was done via tokenization where all the ownership would be just handled on a distributed ledger? So you would know who bought and sold it. And then potentially it would be much more liquid. And because it's done through one of the advantages of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies is, is the fractionalization. That can be, we don't think about one in Bitcoin. You can own 0.00001543 Bitcoin. You could do the same thing with these tokenized assets. You could own a very small piece of a rental real estate project. And so that there wouldn't be the need for a minimum investment. One reason we have minimum investments or the minimum amounts they have to put up is just some of the, the sheer paperwork of servicing these limited partners. And so this fractionalization is an advantage of that. Now, this, this will probably be years in the coming, but it is coming because there is an advantage to basically capture some of that ill liquidity premium to be able to be able to sell in the secondary market. Now, there's some challenges. Just because a token is created, let's say this Manhattan condo, there needs to be some trading in the secondary market. In other words, individuals are going to want to be able to to buy and sell. If it's thinly traded, then it doesn't really solve anything. But if it tends to be more liquid and there's actually a secondary market, this would facilitate the transactions very inexpensively. The other problem, though, is when we talk about how do we structure the, these distributed ledgers, this tokenization, is it going to be a very open process where you can see all the transactions? Or is it going to be more of a closed process? where there's Because right now, the advantage of, let's say Bitcoin, it's very, very open. The ledger is everywhere in terms of those, the miners participating in it. But it doesn't have to be that way. There could be a central authority that controls the ledger and and keeps more anonymity. The other challenge is just sheer governance. If an entity owns a building, let's say this, this condo development in Manhattan, If they own the majority of it, they're going to take care of it. But if it's just been pieced out to thousands and thousands of individuals, who's going to make sure that the the building stays maintained? It needs to be somebody with some type of economic interest. Another challenge is let's say it's gold or there's a physical asset and there's a token tied to it. What if somebody takes that asset, steals the gold? How does that get tied and reflected in the price of the token that's tied to it. So these are some challenges that need to be worked out. But it's, it seems very clear that this is where things are going. It might take decades, but the current process is very, very inefficient, as we've talked about, and I've given some examples. And the ability, think about the ability to diversify your investments even more because there wouldn't be these minimums to invest in a rental real estate project or any type of assets because of tokenization. It would be fascinating to be able to build out a portfolio that way. Now of course we we would again you want to separate out speculation from investing. So investments have cash flow, something you can value. Typically, cash flow is growing. Speculation there's some disagreement on what it's worth, because there is no cash flow, but this would work for both speculations like gold as well as cash flow, generating assets like real estate fascinating topic, and so we'll see see how it develops. Kind of an esoteric topic, I admit I was hesitant to do the episodes, but I think it's important to recognize kind of what's happening on sort of the the cutting edge and and just recognize the plumbing. What is the plumbing behind the financial markets? I hadn't looked at this whole idea of the DTC and and how my stocks, my own stock that I don't really, I don't have a certificate to it. I basically have an IOU and it's held by, in the name of the broker and then deposited at the DTC and just sort of, who owns it? These are challenges tokenization could solve. You can get show notes for this episode at com, Including in that, I will have all the links, the articles that I referenced. While there, please sign up for my free Insider's Guide and I'll email those links to you weekly as well as other valuable content I share only with Insider's Guide members, including a weekly essay, things that didn't make it into the podcast, things I want to just update you on in terms of what's going on with the markets in terms of the economy and other developments. And you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. It is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.